Hi, my name is Leo WT, and you have found your way to the Conversations Podcast. Conversations exist to create spiritually-minded conversations about life. We desire to create safe space for dialogue and community. We desire to come together regularly and intentionally to generate conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. Everyone is welcome at the conversation. Oh, my word. I had no volume for that. (laughs) All right, I'm back, friends. So uh, as I was saying before, which no one heard except for myself and my office, I am going to be doing a little bit of a conversations and grad school mashup today. So what I'm going to do is a lot of people are asking me, who I am, what I do, uh, and why I have any sort of claim to a a conversation about religion. And it's funny because for the first part of my life, uh, you know, up to year 19 or 20, I was a person who everyone knew as someone who was religious, who was a Christian, who was a pastor's kid, and moreover, someone who understood themselves to be called to be in ministry or be a pastor, whatever those terms mean. And you know, that was a big part of my life, but here I am in this part of my life, and some people don't even know my birth name. Uh, Some people don't even know that I went to college to be a pastor, and so it's kind of out of left field that I'm coming on, especially in our local commentary, as a person who who is interested and moreover educated and qualified to have a conversation about religion. So I am going to share with you part of my educational process for a class that I have called Living Into Our Commitments. Living Into Our Commitments is a class specific to my school, and it's essentially a class that says, if you're going to believe something, it has to have an effect on how you live your life. So what, what do we believe in and how do we live it out, essentially? So it's a really cool class. And I'm doing a bit of a mashup because for this unit, I'm supposed to present a project that's within my given discipline. And my discipline would happen to be not necessarily a sermon or a systematic organization plan, but my discipline and my vocation is a conversations episode. And so I'm going to share that with you guys today. All right. I just wanted to make a change up because my microphone was set up for a big room with two people and it's just me and my tiny little you know, closet of an office. So I just wanted to introduce you guys to a little of what I'm doing for school and see how it sits with you. Uh, so this is my conversations episode where I talk about my education, right? Um, and so I wanted to talk about exploring the intersections. And when we're talking about intersectionality in this, this unit that I've been studying, I'm talking about race and racism. So when it comes to race and racism, the easiest way to enter into a conversation and perhaps the only real way to enter into a beneficial conversation is to talk about what racism is first. Like that's what we have to do first. And so in in the, the writing Portraits of White Racism, author David Wellman states that racism is a system of advantages that happen based upon race. And I think that's a great It's a great point to make because it brings up the fact that it's a system. It's not merely individual attitudes, but it's there's that part, but there's also the system that goes to undergird and back up those parts. So what happens in modern day America is, is you might not feel racist, you might not actively be racist, but you're participating in a racist based system. And if you're white by default, you're ahead in that system. Another person uh, went on to define racism as prejudice plus power. And I think that that's an important part in this conversation also because we have both prejudice and power 
that combine to make racism. So you can you can be prejudiced or you can be racist, right? And there's a nuance between those between those terms. So um, hateful behavior is hateful behavior, no matter who does it, right? But when when we ask, can people of color be racist, or when people ask, can people of color be racist, um, author uh, the author of this article that I was reading, um, which was Beverly. Tatum. Um, she said, when people ask if people of color can be racist, the answer depends on your definition of racism. If one defines racism as racial, racial prejudice, the answer is yes. People of color can and do have racially based prejudices. However, if one defines racism as a system of advantage based on race, then the answer is no. People of color cannot be racist because they do not systematically benefit from racism. And that quote is from the uh, article Defining Racism by Beverly Daniel Tatum. And I think that Beverly uh, Tatum brings up an interesting point here because I personally do not believe that a non-white person can be racist. I believe fully that they can be prejudiced against people of a different race, but I don't believe they can be racist because the system is not set up to support a racial-based prejudice that is against white people. The system is set up to support racially-based attitudes against black, brown, and indigenous people and people of color. That is the difference when we're talking about racism. And so last summer when everybody was talking about the George Floyd protests and how you know white people were just as bad, the, the answer is in fact, no, it's not possible you can be prejudiced, right? But as a Black person, as a person of color, you do not have the systematic advantage. And if you need to talk about advantage, that's something that people get touchy about. No one wants to talk about white privilege, right? Especially white people. But white people will defend, will actively defend their racial advantage with access to better schools, jobs, and things of the like, like housing, even when they do not embrace consciously overtly racist thinking. So that's why you have to understand the prejudice plus power equation because white people have advantages, documented advantages in terms of schools, housing, jobs, healthcare, all of those things, but they don't have a power to, to uh, that undergirds that racial advantage. So they, are, they can be racially prejudiced, but they cannot be racist. And I think that that's an important conversation to have when we're talking about racism because racial prejudice exists, right? But it is far less insidious and damaging because it's based on a person and not a system. So our system is set up to disadvantage people that are black, black brown, indigenous, uh, people of color and other, right? That is a thing that the system is going to perpetuate into infinity until we make a change in it, right? So racism is obviously a topic that's current in the news, uh, but I think that to have a, a real conversation about it, it helps to define racism first. So, um, you know, we've kind of talked about that, like a system of advantage based on race. It exists, right? Look at, look at our... Um, Look at our incarceration rates in America. We're the most incarcerated country in the world. And well over half, as high as two thirds of our prison population are black males. 
So that creates an issue. Another thing to think about when we think about race is, is co-occurring factors, let's say. And the way that we describe that is called intersectionality. Intersectionality is a term that was kind of popularized by Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a legal scholar. Uh, she happens to be a black female. And um, she does amazing work in regards to legal issues surrounding particularly black women. So I'm just gonna make it do a quick check and make sure my volume's on here. Yay, my volume's working, okay. Cool, sometimes my mic likes to die midstream, so, but back into Kimberly Crenshaw's ideas. So Kimberly Crenshaw, legal scholar. Now, uh, I'm pulling this experiment from a TED talk of hers uh, called, let me see if I can find it here. Kimberly Crenshaw's TED talk. Uh, it was about the necessity of intersectionality, right? And so she gives this example in the beginning and I'm totally gonna use it. So if you happen to be watching, I'm going to read a couple names for you. And if you can do this for me, I'd love you to drop an emoji in the comment bar. All right. So if you're watching and you know these names, just drop a little hand emoji. Okay. So the first set of names I want to know if you guys know are Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray. When you watch this, if you know those names, drop an emoji in the comment bar, right? Now, the next set of names I want to ask you if you know to drop an emoji in the comment bar if you know these names. Michelle Cousseau, Tanisha Anderson, Aura Rossier, and Megan Hockaday. If you don't know those names, I'm gonna give you a little context. Both groups of names were black people that died due to police brutality. The first group of names was men. And the only defining factor of the second group of names is that they are female. I'm not gonna lie, when I first heard this example as someone who's been actively involved in the Black Lives Matter movement, um, honestly, since the beginning, um, some people might have not seen that and I got a lot of hate from that last year. Like, oh, have you been here from the beginning? Yes, yes I have. Um, <laughs> but um, as someone who is involved, has been actively involved in Black Lives Matter and, and working towards um, racial justice and really justice for everyone, I didn't know the second group of names. And that's really embarrassing to admit because I had been actively working to say the names of Eric Garner, Mike Brown, Tamir Rice, and Freddie Gray. But I had no idea who Michelle, Tanisha, Aura, and Megan were. The thing is, is that Black men, right, are operating this on this axis of being Black and male. Black women, are operating on an axis of being black and female. And what happens is when you're a black female, right? In, in Crenshaw's example, you are actually twice marginalized because you are black, but you have the added um, confounding category of being a female. 
And you can go out even further than that when you talk about intersectionality, because you could be a Black female who is queer, and that's taking it to a third level of intersection. Basically, when you're a Black male, you have this access, uh, this access of Blackness with which you encounter uh, you can encounter injustice. But when you're a Black female, you can have not only the axis of Blackness, but the axis of femaleness that you can be discriminated based upon. And it's really interesting to me because we do not have the intellectual framework to deal with intersectionality in a lot of cases. And sometimes, you know, like for a person like myself, I grew up in a pretty sheltered environment that was really rural and it was really racially homogenous, really religiously homogenous. It was very much everybody was coming from a fairly similar standpoint, right? And so I didn't understand that people could identify in multiple intersecting ways, right? Um, and then later in my life, when I realized myself as queer, that was really when I began to start understanding intersectionality, right? Um, the Sometimes I like to reference, well, I always like to reference people who have been doing the work a lot longer than me, uh, especially I give credit to their ideas. And so I have to give credit to the, um, to the founders of Black Lives Matter, and in particular, Patrice Cullors. Um, I read and watched a video of hers for this presentation, and I want to share a little bit of info about that with you. So Patrice, uh, Patrice Cullors and also her co-founder, Elisa Garza. And then there's another woman who I can't remember her name. Please don't hate me. <laughs> but Patrice and Elisa are Black women who are queer. So their level of intersectionality is essentially raised to the third power because they can be discriminated upon based on their Blackness, based on their femaleness and based on their queerness. And so it's really interesting if you listen to Patrice talk about how the Black Lives Matter movement got started. Um, it happened after, after Mike Brown, I believe is when she said they started. And, um, oh no, it was after George Zimmerman, the person who shot Trayvon Martin was acquitted um, or was you know not found guilty in court. And Elisa, or Alicia had, um, she had made a post, which was essentially an open letter to Black people, um, attempting to create some sort of consoling in this just terrible moment where a blatant murderer was let go. Um, and she, you know, Patrice wrote in the caption bar, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And about two days, late, within two days later, they had started um, the movement of Black Lives Matter and dedicated themselves to it. And what's interesting about that is that they are Black women who are queer. And so from the beginning at its inception, Black Lives Matter was meant to deal with intersectionality and to bring up intersectionality and to present it to the world as there's no justice and no peace until there's justice and peace for all of us. But one of the things that Patrice said uh, in an interview that she did with MSNBC is that as the movement began to grow, it became clear that the historical narrative was playing out. The historical narrative of Black people has been fighting for Black, cis, heterosexual Christian men, both of their lives and putting their lives at the forefront of the conversation. And that's what happened as the Black Lives Matter movement began to kind of spread was they lost the intersectionality with which they were founded upon. 
And one of the things that I've appreciated about the Black Lives Matter movement is that if you really look at it, they have constantly fought back against that historical narrative as much as possible by saying Black queer lives later ma lives matter, by saying Black female lives matter, by saying Black disabled lives matter, by saying Black immigrant lives matter. They, um, from the top, have been consistently invested in the intersectionality and the justice of all people. Some examples of intersectionality uh, in terms of you know, race, let's just say, so say a person can be black. They could also be female, poor, disabled, a religious other, a non-English speaker, an immigrant, an undocumented immigrant. They could be LGBTQ. They could be rural. They could live in an area of food apartheid, which means they don't have access to fresh food. And that can happen both in urban and rural environments. And they could also be suffering under the uh, um, axis of climate injustice as frequently happens in impoverished areas. So these intersections have to define how we organize. And it doesn't matter whether you're urban or rural, there's intersectionality in all of these areas. And if oppression is intersectional, then the work of justice must also be intersectional. Because you cannot fight against racism without fighting against sexism. Otherwise, anything that you accomplish will be incomplete. There is no justice for one group until there is justice for all. And so when we look at the idea of building better coalitions and creating wider conversations, we have to look around the room and we have to say who's not here and who should be here. And that's how we have to organize. It is fine to have a, a movement that is focused on just one thing, but this is something that happened to the suffrage movement. And it created a real issue because suffrage was supposed to be the right of women to vote. But Susan B. Anthony was literally quoted as having said, if you have to let just a certain group of women vote, let white women vote because we're equipped, basically. That's a paraphrase, because we're equipped. So essentially, Susan B. Anthony, while she did great work, she didn't do intersectional work. And as a result, Black women were left out of the suffrage movement, which is, is terrible. But you can see that echoed even today, even in the March on Washington, um, that the women's, the women's March on Washington that was organized, it was actually originally, the idea and the name was taken from a, a Black Led, black female-led movement. And so there are all sorts of moments that you can see where justice work did not occur in tandem, and people tried to make it occur in a vacuum. And as a result, it left people still marginalized, i.e. Black women and wanting to vote, um, i.e. disabled people in most converse, disabled people are not even considered in the conversation in most conversations. So if injustice is going to be intersectional, then our coalitions that are working towards justice must be intersectional. And like I said, that matters whether you're in an urban or a rural environment because intersectionality exists in the hood and in the woods. No matter where you are, there is people who, experiencing, who experience multiple axes of, of oppression. Another flip side of intersectionality is interpersonal intersectionality, meaning within oneself, because sometimes intersectionality does not have to be bad. 
sometimes when we look inside of our own brains, we can see the intersections that we ourselves occupy. So I occupy, you know, I am a trans person, I am a non-binary person, I am, I guess, a I guess a religious other at this point. Um, I, you know, I definitely live in an area categorized by poverty and would likely probably be lower class or impoverished based on my tax return. So all of these intersections inform who I am. And when I seek to join or start or facilitate a movement for social justice, I can pull on all of those intersections to bring into the conversation so that it's never just about one thing. It's never just about this. It's about this and this and this. And sometimes realizing our own intersections can free us up to see solidarity with people whom we would have never considered to be our neighbor before. But when we see the intersections within ourselves, we can begin to embrace the intersections in the world. And then we can begin to work for the justice of all people. That's a little bit of something I've been learning about this semester in my Living Into Our Commitments class. It's something that I've been working out in um, a small group I have called a jam session. We meet weekly and we discuss our class materials and our group is, is incredibly interesting. Um, we are diverse age, diverse gender, diverse religion, and I have learned so much just by engaging with the intersections of my fellow jam sessions. Um, I have a, a friend who is in my jam group and she is Muslim and a chaplain. Um, and so she's experienced this sort of weird um, prejudice moving into the hospital systems and trying to be a chaplain because chaplaincy is interfaith. Um, but we typically don't think of other faiths as being adequate for chaplaincy, but she's a devout Muslim, like she is committed, she has studied, she has read, and she's compassionate. And she's experienced, you know, oppression just because of her um, religious otherness, because of her femaleness. And it's been really great to be in conversation with people who are different and can offer different perspectives. I think that also adds to the move for justice and, and it helps us build better coalitions. When we look around, we say, who's not in the room? Whose voice needs to be heard? And then when we intentionally center the narratives that society doesn't value, right? Give the microphone to the people who don't usually have it in our world. That, my friends, is how we take intersectionality and we turn it into a way to build better coalitions. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope this was uh, insightful. I hope it was interesting. I will li list my sources in the about info um, on YouTube and in the comments on Facebook and in these episode info in the podcasts. I hope you guys really enjoyed this. Uh, please feel free to tune back in. I do regular uh, conversations once a week, typically Monday nights, and they are spiritually minded conversations about life, belief, and the intersection of the two. And absolutely everyone is welcome at the conversation. If you would like more information, you can message me or you can visit conversationsofficial.com where you can find all of our social media channels, all of our sponsorship channels, and even some odd one-off blogs. So I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for taking an interest in what I'm learning this semester and I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. This has been the Conversations Podcast. Thank you so much for joining. If you have any questions or comments or just want to get involved, feel free to join the conversation on social media. You can find us at Conversations Official on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And please don't forget to rate, follow, and share this podcast. We're available on Anchor, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for joining the conversation.